we find that the the actual debt that people leave school with will be about 30 to 50% more than what the financial aid office tells them. Does talking about your money make you cringe? Are you tired of fighting about finances? Do you want to stop sabotaging your financial happiness? Then you are in the right place. Welcome to Breaking Money Silence, a podcast series aimed at helping all of us talk more openly about money. Your host, Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, is a wealth psychology expert who is doing what she does best, speaking about taboo topics. International speaker, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection, Kathleen understands money and our relationship with it. Over the past decade, she has empowered thousands of people to break money silence at home and at work. Now, here is Kathleen. Well, I am really honored to have Travis Hornsby here today, the founder of Student Loan Planner on the Breaking Money Silence podcast. Welcome. Thanks, Kathleen. Great to be here. Yeah. You know, you have a really, I don't know, intriguing and somewhat controversial myth to share with us. Do you want to say a little bit about the myth and why, you know, what motivated you to pick it? Sure. So, so the myth is that women get married to pay off their student loan debt. Oh, that's hard to hear. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really controversial one, and it's and it's probably a little bit sexist, right? But I think that there's a lot of this kind of thought that you know, okay, women go to grad school, and then they might want to find a higher earning partner to kind of help them with paying off their loans, because we know that women earn eighty cents on the dollar, uh, you know, that men earn. And so the idea there would be that that women maybe need to rely on the you know financial stability of marriage to get rid of their loans, and so that's that's our money myth today. Yeah, no, and when you say that, I mean it. It sounds far fetched, but you'd be surprised how many times I hear uh, in the work that I do sometimes that being insinuated that only he's the breadwinner or that you know she married or is staying for the money. So we both you know, think that this probably is a myth, but I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the data that you have specifically around student loan debt and women uh, as, you know, the start of busting this myth wide open. Sure. So we've had thousands of, of people that we've made student loan plans for, which means that we've got really good data sets on things. So in one of the surveys that we did, we've looked at the impact of student loan debt on things like marriage and how many children you have and when you have them. So we, we did a lot of, of, of uh, parsing of that data and we found that women were about twice as likely as men to not get married or delay marriage because of their debt load. So that's, you know, looking at high debt men versus high debt women, not just men versus women, right? So that's a really fascinating finding because what we're finding is that, you know, a lot of women are obviously breadwinners because you've got more women going to grad school than ever before earning a majority of the graduate degrees. So we've had a ton of cases where a perfect example of this is a, you know, female dentist making 200,000 a year married to a teacher making 50,000 a year who's a male. And that, that woman is trying to figure out, okay, I've got 500,000 of student loan debt. I'm the breadwinner. I have the majority of the financial stress in this relationship. And I love and think that my spouse would be a great, you know, uh, father. And the problem though, is just, I feel like I have so much stress that I can't safely bring a child into the world because of this financial burden. And we see that just routinely across the board, way more on women, which, you know, it's super dangerous to talk anecdotes and generalizations, Sure, sure. you know, I mean, but, but, but that said, I mean, the, our, our female clients have just in general been a lot more uh, I guess, financially responsible, you could say, or a lot more concerned financially uh, just about their debt. And so that just leads to, I think, more anxiety 
And so it's that anxiety is causing people to delay decisions that they would otherwise want to do, like, you know, potentially having some some kids or just making, you know, long-term partnership formal by getting married. Yeah. And when I read this stat for the first time, I, I read it and I went, what? And then I reread it. And so clearly based on this data and certainly the work that I do with a lot of women and female breadwinners and advisors uh, who work with women is that, you know, women, it sounds like, especially your experience in your firm, are being more responsible. It's not that they're getting married um, just because it's financially convenient. And in fact, you know, one of the things that I find so interesting is how gender roles are shifting in terms of, you know, who's bringing what to the marriage in terms of who's making, managing, investing the money, and and in your case, who's kind of bringing the debt. So why do you think that there is this misconception that somehow women aren't as skilled in finance or that are looking for someone else to take care of them, when in fact what you're saying with your types of clients is that they're actually potentially more responsible or at least as responsible as their male counterparts? Yeah, I think they worry about it more because men are a lot, our male clients are just a lot more impetuous. They just make decisions a lot of times without thinking through all of the potential downside risks. So, you know, you've you've got that that situation where I think, you know, I think some, I mean, this is true for a lot of men too, but like, I think people just don't want to do something they're not comfortable with. They don't want to have to think about something and, mm-hmm. you know, that they don't, they don't enjoy and, and just, you know, you know, from a sort of cultural norms and, and societal bias standpoint, you know, for a long, long time, like the first question the financial advisor or broker asked was, you know, can I speak to your husband? Right. And so, I mean, I certainly saw that with my grandparents just because that was sort of the, the norm for their generation. And that's just changed enormously. And so now you've got women that are making the financial decisions in their household and they're making the money. And they also have the debt that goes with that higher income that they got. So when one thing that I think is really telling and really interesting is I'll give you one example because I think it's great to give examples of this stuff to make it like you know tangible. Uh, there was a, a uh, orthodontist that we had that had about six hundred thousand of student loan debt, and if she she worked full time, she was going to earn about two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand a year, and if she worked part time, she'll make about half of that, so one hundred twenty five to one hundred fifty thousand a year. And her her uh, husband really wanted to be a stay at home dad. And she didn't want him to have all the fun and she wanted to expend about half of the time with her new baby. And it was causing enormous amounts of stress on her. And she was the financial breadwinner. She was the financial decision maker. But student loans is something that's super complicated in America, especially when you owe that big of a balance. And what we kind of, what the insight we provided in that situation was, is student loan debt, if it's federal, can be treated like a tax and not a debt. And I want to unpack that a little bit more. So under income-driven repayment options, you can pay 10% of whatever your income is towards your student loans, and your student loans are, are going to be in good order. They're not going to default on you, right? So, so okay. So this is where I was a fortunate, fortunate young lady way back when, uh, and my college was paid for by my parents. Thank you, mom and dad. Uh, but I know there's so much student debt, and as we're talking about women in student debt today, but just in general in this country, uh, why do you think it is so complicated or so complex? I know this is what your firm does is help, you know, with the complexity and help people uh, really develop a plan that makes sense. But do you think it was created to be complex so we don't talk about it and we look the other way? Or do you think it was actually, you know, just happened that it became this complex? Sure. I, I think that I think that basically what happened is if you look at kind of other countries that are a little smaller that pay based on their income, like New Zealand or Australia or the UK or Canada, 
they just are smaller countries and they just kind of made one big change and they didn't layer on program after program. So the United States, basically, it's a very big country, very complex, a lot of loopholes. And so basically what we did with our student loan program since we started getting involved in student loans in the 60s is every new time we reformed student loans, we just layered it on top of the old program. And so what that does is take that set of loans that was issued from this date to this date and create that set of rules. And then that set of rules got to be maintained for 30 years, right? And then the next program comes along or the next administration comes along and creates a new set of rules. And those rules get layered on top of the old rules. And so that's how we have almost a dozen different repayment options today, because you've basically seen administration after administration create new options, but not eliminate old ones. And what that's basically done is created a super complex system. And on top of that, you had in 2006, a a bill passed that eliminated the caps for borrowing for graduate school programs specifically. So for that reason, you've seen an explosion in grad school programs. That's why if you ever ride a subway anywhere in America, you see all these online master's degree programs, because you can get any amount of debt, that you want without any underwriting at all given to you by the federal government. For undergrad, it's a little bit more carefully scrutinized, like they have caps on what the individual can borrow. But for undergrad, parents can actually take out the unlimited borrowing amount. So what we'll see is the people that have the largest balances are generally either people who went to grad school themselves, you know, professional school, something like that, or parents who took out loans for their children, especially multiple children, to go to universities that cost a lot of money that they didn't have the money to pay for. Wow. Yeah, I didn't realize the layering effect uh, and the fact that it was uncapped. And so really, when we're talking about financial literacy and we're talking about people making wise decisions, you know, unfortunately, I don't think we have the financial literacy in this country yet to be able to have a large majority of people say, well, that doesn't really make sense to take an unlimited amount of debt to get a degree to then earn a certain amount of money. People don't kind of connect those dots before. I think they're now doing it a little bit more. Um, But your firm is really positioned to help people once they're already in trouble. Is that correct? Or do you do any preventative work as well? We have just started doing preventative work. So we have on our site under like the higher us part of the site, um, studentplanner.com slash pre-debt is the, the link for that. So basically what we'll do is is we, we do, that's the majority of our business is helping people once they already have the problem. But for somebody that's going into more than $50,000 of expected student loan debt, we do now do the pre-debt consult to try to explain what that's going to look like and what their options could be and what the debt will actually be. So just one example, we find that the the actual debt that people leave school with will be about 30 to 50% more than what the financial aid office tells them. Wow. That's a huge difference. Well, the reason for that is because the financial aid office usually doesn't include origination fees in the calculated loan amount, they don't add accrued interest, which uh, grows while you're still in school. And they also don't anticipate tuition increases that everybody in the world knows is coming, but they don't list on their website because they haven't published them yet. Right. So you're going to have a a 5% per year increase in the list price. You're going to have a a 5% origination fee almost or four or 5%. And then you also have this, you know, 7% interest that's accruing on you every single year. So that's just really a brutal combination. And the financial aid offices have no federal regulations that require them to disclose that right now. So most of them do not because it's not in their best interest to do so. Huh. And that is money silence at its worst. Oh, yeah. And then even the averages are messed up because they'll give you the average number of, of you know someone's debt. But what that doesn't tell you is a lot of those people got family or parental help to cover a big portion of their school. So a lot of people might only borrow for one year for a three or four year program. And then their average number pulls the average number for the class way down. Right. And so I've seen this like we have the debt 
numbers of people who had to take out the full amount to cover it. And then we can compare that to the program's average that's published with the college scorecard Department of Ed data. And there's a, a massive skew in that. You know, we, we see a huge difference between the average published debts for programs and the actual debts. So it really is a situation of buyer beware. Huh. And so, you know, I'm joking, but I know that part of the reason you got involved in this was because I believe it was your wife uh, had some complex student loan debt. So I'm not saying she married you to take care of the debt, but you did actually help her do that. So can you share that part of your story? Because I think it's important. It's why you do what you do. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I think that was just a, a thing that impressed her, maybe, versus uh, one of the reasons. <laughs> yeah, I like to think, at least. Actually, you know, she didn't really care about that money, still does not care very much about money. And, and that's a, a classic case of a spouse that one spouse is into it and one spouse just can't stand it. So, if you ask her about things like, you know, retirement savings, brokerage accounts, mutual funds, her eyes glaze over because she's passionate about helping patients and she doesn't really care about what her earnings are relative to her peers or things like that. So uh, I did get involved in this because she made a terrible mistake managing her loans because she got really poor advice. And I know that there's a lot of people out there like my wife that don't really care that much about money or not super attentive to their finances that I could certainly help if I got involved in the space. So I used to be a bond trader. I just felt like that was a field that wouldn't make me feel fulfilled in life after a 50-year career. Uh, Just you know, not, nothing against rich people, but they've already won the game. So I'd rather, instead of pad somebody's margin of victory, I'd rather help somebody win the game. Yeah. Excellent. So what advice do you have for people listening in that are in either in the situation that they're already somewhat in trouble or, or are at least at the point where they're not looking at it, or even more importantly, somebody who's looking to go to college and take out these loans uh, and maybe has an opportunity to, to take a different course or at least make an informed decision? Yeah, sure. So so kind of to, to go back to that earlier point of, of somebody with the huge debt that wanted to work part time. So she can pay 10% of her income towards her student loans and so can a listener that's struggling. So worst case scenario, you're going to lose 10% of your income towards your student loans. And then on, on the, the worst case scenario is that debt is going to grow. And in 20 to 25 years, you will have to pay income taxes on that forgiven debt. So that's the thing that freaks people out is not so much the 10% of your income payment you know, because that's pretty straightforward. It's the five. It's the it's the tax bomb at the end. What's interesting is you can prepare for that by putting about five percent of your income away in mutual funds long term. So if you have ten percent going into your loans and five percent going into mutual funds for your future taxes that you'll owe and your forgiven debt, that means the total bill for your student loans, no matter how bad it is, is approximately fifteen percent of your income. Okay. So what's interesting and powerful about that is as long as you can afford to live, as long as you have a good savings rate and a decent surplus over what you're earning versus what you're spending, that means you have absolutely unlimited flexibility in terms of how and what you do with your working career and what you want to pursue. Because if you're making a very low income, they'll give you a deduction and you know 15% of, of almost nothing after the deduction is zero. So it's basically no cost. If you're making 100000 uh, which is a decent income, but it's not anywhere close to a four or five hundred thousand dollar balance that you have to pay back. Then you can basically have about eight to ten thousand a year of your income going towards your loans instead of forty or fifty thousand, and you can actually afford to save for retirement and live the life that you want. So the advice that I would give to somebody is that remember that your debt at its worst is not a debt; it's a tax, and the government gives you the option to buy out that student loan by refinancing it to a lower interest rate if you determine that paying 10 or 15% of your income is a lot less advantageous than just paying it back straight up. 
Nice. I've never really thought of it that way. So you certainly opened my eyes as well. And I'm sure uh, people listening in uh, are interested uh, and want to learn more. So um, time goes so fast when we're doing this. And I, I want to give you a chance to say a little bit about how people can find you and be able to break money silence about student debt with you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the website is the best source for people to start with because it's all free stuff. So student loan planner.com. You can check out our blog and type in basically any uh, thing about your profession, your state of life you're in, your age, and you're, you're probably going to see a relevant article. It's going to address your situation. So I would encourage somebody to check out the free resources first. And then if you are super stressed because you have a six-figure debt amount and you want a custom plan, uh, you could reach out to us, help at studentloanplanner.com, and we'll tell you if we think it's appropriate or not. I don't want people paying us for just nothing. Uh, so we try to make sure we do a good job of making sure that people have that anxiety, have that six-figure debt, because that's what we can really help with versus somebody with maybe twenty or 30000 of loans might just want to use like a cashback refinancing link just to get it into a lower interest rate and pay it off. So that's not something that you would necessarily need to pay a few hundred dollars for a custom plan for. Any last words before I let you go? I would just say don't stick your head in the sand. That's the worst thing you can do. So, you know, if, if you absolutely do nothing, at least get your student loans at some sort of income driven plan, because by definition, you can afford it. And if you do that, will at the very minimum, you'll minimize the, the damage. You know, you'll, you'll be okay. You might not optimize everything, but you'll be okay. So I would just suggest that one thing. And the second thing is we've found in our data that savings rate is the most important thing of any financial statistic. So you don't have to worry so much about optimizing your interest rate or, I mean, I mean your, your, uh, well, yeah, lowering your interest rate on your student loans, getting the top investment return on your investments, maximizing your 401k versus paying off debt. That's not the wrong, that's not really the right conversation to be having. It's just how can you increase your earnings and just increase the amount going away to your future, whether that's paying down debt or putting it into investments. So that that's a good thing. Basically focus on what you can control and don't stress about stuff because it'll work out. Awesome. Well, I have certainly enjoyed our conversation. I know people listening in have. Uh, the end result is, you know, have that money conversation definitely with somebody who has the expertise like your firm. Anybody who's interested in finding out more about Travis Hornsby and his firm, Student Loan Planner, can go to studentloanplanner.com. Thanks again for taking the time to talk to me, and I'm sure we'll have future conversations. Thanks, Kathleen. Thank you for listening to Breaking Money Silence, hosted by Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, a wealth psychology expert, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave a review. Also, share this episode with your friends and family. It is a great way to get the conversation started. For more money talk tips and information, or to hire Kathleen to speak at your next event, go to www.breakingmoneysilence.com.